We are continuing our series on our values as a church, and we've been saying this is actually our last week, and as we've been going through the series, we've been covering our values as a church because we've been saying in the midst of times that are changing, these are the things that never change. These are the kind of, we've referred to them as like anchor bolts. They, when the storm comes, we don't move. These are the things that we stand on. And, and again, with this being our last one, um, we are capturing why our value around why we gather as a church. What I mean by gather, that might seem kind of cultish, I realize as I say it out loud. What I mean is uh, we usually say this, use that as go to church, right, on Sunday mornings. Now, historically, the church would talk about assembling together, gathering together. So I'm going to use that word gather because it's kind of a good word to describe what we're doing when we come together on Sundays is we're gathering together as the church. And we wanted to wait until this last one, largely because the other ones, the other five first values are, are really about being the church. And we wanted to first kind of highlight and emphasize being the church and what we value in being the church. And now we're coming to, before we kind of think about what do we do as the church or what does it mean to go to church on Sundays. And so uh, here's the thing, as we, we go into this, you might be thinking, there's two things I should say. One, uh, I'm at church. Uh, I think someone else needs this this sermon, right? Like, I'm, you're preaching to the choir. We're here on Memorial Day weekend of all times, right? Like, we're the faithful. We go to church. Well, we'll come back to that in a second. Like, the question is, but why are we here, right? And then uh, the, other, the other thing that I, I should highlight is just why, if we, we come to church, why are we doing this? And is it just duty? But why do we gather? I think that the gathering of the church is absolutely vital, absolutely vital in the midst of our spiritual lives. Our, our value is encountering God over personal preferences. Encountering God over personal preferences. Because we believe Sundays exist to help us encounter God by remembering the gospel. And, and, and then realigning our souls, our lives, to what God has helped us to remember when we gather together. So every Sunday throughout, and I'll be unpacking this more, we talk about we have gathered here to remember and then to be realigned to what we are remembering in the story of who God is. And what happens is when we forget why we gather, personal preferences often take the place of why we gather. We can either gather to encounter God, and that's our expectation when we come, or what happens is we forget why we gather in the first place, and what happens is this just becomes kind of a performance. It just becomes a product. It just becomes something to consume, and what happens is we begin vying over personal preferences, and we think that's all it's actually about. And so if we forget why we do this, the purpose of this, then what happens is all kinds of things are going to flood in. We're going to say, well, then let's just make it about this, and I want it to be about this. You see where that goes? And so it's important that every now and then we pause and go, why are we gathering together? Throughout time, the church has gathered. Throughout time, from the beginning of the church in the first century, the church gathers to remember the gospel, remember the story of redemption, which I'll unpack in a little bit, but we've, we've forgotten in many ways how to tell the story. I think the American church right now finds itself in terms of how we do church on Sundays, because we've forgotten how to tell the gospel story when we gather. We've forgotten what the whole thing's all about. And so what we need is we need to realign how we do it and think differently about how we do it. Let me, let me uh, set this up. It's kind of a fun example. I remember I got to take some film classes in undergrad, and I remember I've always been um, uh, struck by this hinge point in film history, which is when 
Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho came out in 1960. So Alfred Hitchcock, some of you, you can bring that up in a little bit, actually. Save it, save it. Sorry, it was like a, I'm going to unveil something. Um, so when Alfred Hitchcock, what happened was in America, kind of cinema going in America. After World War II, there was this time of opulence. And so everybody, uh, all the movies began to kind of just take on this opulence. And, and over and over again throughout the 1950s, uh, movies were created with this sweeping, like huge, elaborate sound stages. And, and there would always be kind of like beautiful, beautiful people. And, and, and there were this elaborate dress and attire. And, they, and over time, what happened was instead of it being about the story and developing characters and telling a, a story from a unique angle or viewpoint, it just became about, hey, just tell the same story with a different way. Just put up beautiful people. Have a, a kind of a, an amazing background. Make it visually appealing. Make the sound just moving and emotional. But it doesn't really matter what's going on in the story because that's really why people are, are coming for this. It's just kind of to consume this product. And, and what happened was um, a story storytelling in cinema was quickly disappearing. And what happened in American history, and you might not know this, what happened was that people began to then only go to movies, like they would come to movies and come and go throughout the entire movie. No one would ever, like people didn't show up at the beginning because they knew that what they were going to get was just kind of like, you know, again, sweeping sound scores and, you know, well, there's Marilyn Monroe and this, and this uh, character. And it's kind of like this movie is the same character, just a little bit different. Oh, there she is again. It's the same thing really again. They just really went and it was social time. And all it was was, oh, wow, that's visually appealing. Okay, moving on to the next thing. And that's all it became. And what Hitchcock knew was, I'm a storyteller. I want them to learn how to tell stories. And what Hitchcock did was he specifically designed Psycho in order to take the American public by the collar and say, you're missing how to tell great stories. You're missing what it's all about. And so what Hitchcock did was when he, uh, and I'm going to have to get a little bit into the film, and some of you are going to be like, you're, you know, if you're, if you've ever studied film or if you've ever watched Psycho, you'll be like, oh, this is why. But one of the things he did was he hired this actress, Janet Lee. Janet Lee was known as probably the most beautiful actress. She's the blonde who's in the famous shower scene. We'll come to that, even though it's church. And, and so what happens is, at the beginning of the movie, it's known for it kind of sweeps in, and the camera is just on her face, and it follows her throughout. In the first 15 minutes of the movie, it's all about her, and it follows her around. And then what happens, if you remember, there's a scene where she's, like, driving in the rain. It's just, like, following, like, right in her face for, like, a minute and a half, two minutes long. And then, well, and then all of a sudden, it comes to this time where she comes to the shower scene. And, and when she comes to the shower scene, the famous shower scene, and she ends up being murdered in the shower scene and whatnot. And, and when, it, when she's murdered, she falls to the ground. And, and then all of a sudden, the camera zooms out from her eye. And then it begins doing this. It's this disorienting motion by the camera. And as it moves around, what happens is all of a sudden you hear this person coming and going, a Mrs. I can't remember her name, but she comes to Mrs. Miss, Miss, Miss. And what you know is that this is the guy who's the psycho. And what it does is it forces you because you've been anchored in her the whole time, the way Hitchcock's been telling this story. It's anchored in her the whole time. All of a sudden now, if you've been there, what it does is it begins to grip your kind of like your, your soul in this subconscious way where you're like, wait, I don't, I got to anchor in someone. But now that he's coming in and I think he's really weird and I think he might be the psycho killer guy here, what happens is though I need subconsciously for the camera to anchor somewhere. So it anchors with him. And that's why your stomach turns on a subconscious level and you don't realize what he's doing to you. Now, we can unpack that more. You can see this has now changed how film is done ever since then. Everyone use, has developed all the different ways of doing film since then in this way of storytelling. Why do I tell you this? 
Well, Hitchcock did something interesting. He knew that the American public would, would just come and go from the story. And if you came and go, went from the story, because here's the thing, he paid the most for this actress, then killed her off 15 minutes into the movie, and she doesn't come back. Everyone's going, what are you doing? And he said, well, here's what I'm doing. Outside of every single movie theater in America, he put up this placard. And this placard said, it is required that you see Psycho from the very beginning. And it had the, na the time that the movie began, and they were under contract, the movie theaters were, that if they arrived even a minute late, they were not allowed in. And what he said is, you, we have to learn how to engage this story again. We have to learn how to engage, and it's vitally important that we do so, or else what will happen is you'll miss the entire effect. You'll miss the entire thing. And so what Hitchcock teaches us is at this point, when we, we can so often forget how stories are told, and then it changes how we engage with them, and when we change how we engage with them, then what happens is we, it gets worse and worse where we don't tell the story anymore, and we just settle for the music and the lights and the beautiful people, and we forget the story that's being told the whole time. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because I think this is exactly what's often happened in the American church. We've forgotten how to tell the story. We've settled for lights. We've settled for beautiful people. We've settled, you're like, not you, but we've settled for, for just the sweeping sound scores, and we've settled for all these things, right? And we've, we've made it about that, and we just come and go, and we forget that the whole point of the gathering every Sunday, the whole point is that we would learn to engage with the story, to remember the story, to have our hearts changed by the story, which is the story that holds true for all time, that God, a holy God, is saving sinners like you and me, reconciling us to him, so that in the midst of a world gone mad, we would remember that that's not the ultimate story we find ourselves in, but in fact, the story we find ourselves in is in the one of Jesus Christ conquering all nations, conquering our sin, so that we might have life with him. And so that when we walk out of this place, our hearts would be realigned to that reality. And no matter what's going on in our life, we would have that. So what it means is it changes how we tell the story. How do we tell the story? How does it change us? And then also, what does that mean? How do we have to change in the way that we engage? So that's what I'm going to go over today is first the purpose of the gathering. Why do we gather together? Then second, how the gathering accomplishes its purpose. How do we tell the story and how does that change us as we tell the story and we engage in it every week? And then third, how to encounter God in the gathering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of what it means to do church, to come to church, to be at church, whatever phrase we want to use, Lord, I, I pray that you would realign us to your word. You would conform us to your word as a church. What does it mean to gather what do you want to happen when we gather? And Lord, would you captivate us with the truth of who you are? And Lord, that we would walk away from here just realigned to the gospel of Jesus Christ, realigned to your call upon our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Hebrews because Hebrews was most likely originally a sermon. Okay, so Hebrews was most likely a sermon, and, and it was recorded. It's a speech given around probably 60 or 70 A.D., which is about 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. And throughout the, the book, or you could say the sermon, the author has one primary focus. So if you read Hebrews, it's, it's actually, if you're not acquainted with the Old Testament, Hebrews is almost impossible to read and understand 
because he's alluding so much to the Old Testament because what he's doing is he's recounting the story of how God has been saving his people from the beginning of time. And then what happens is it culminates in Jesus because along the way he has several episodes that he highlights. He highlights the giving of the law. He highlights the exodus and the wilderness. He highlights the temple sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats and how does that all work and priests and, and what does this all have to do with what God is doing over time? And what he says is all this culminates in Jesus. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God have found their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That God has been making a promise that he will make a way for sinful people like you and me to have a relationship with him, to live in God's presence, to know him and then have eternity with him and with one another. But how is that possible? It drives to this culminating moment in chapter 10. When after everything that he said in verse 19, he says, therefore, because of all these things, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So what he's going to go on to say is we, we have access to God because God, the holy God of the universe, has done something in his son. Through his blood, through his sacrifice, he now has welcomed us into his presence. And see, one of the reasons why this is so important is because it's so easy to forget this in our daily reality. What the author of Hebrews is saying, now, one of the things in Hebrews that's really fascinating is there, there are several places where the author literally says, you're, you're, what's, what's he say, that you're, you're trampling the blood of the Son of God under, under your feet. And one of, the, one of the ways that scholars have understood the book of Hebrews is that perhaps this, this speech is actually given right outside the temple. And what he's saying to these people, because these people want to know God, they want to have access to him. And so what these people are doing is they're actually going up and offering sacrifices still because the temple is still there. And then what's happening is he's saying, no, no, don't you understand? That's now when you're walking around the temple courts with animal blood under your feet, what you're doing is trampling underfoot the Son of God and you're making a mockery of it. And what he's saying here is, I want you to know how the blood of Christ, the once and for final work of God, has come. And you now have access to him and you don't have to draw near to God in this way anymore. It's so easy to forget that reality. Do you know that that's our reality? We are welcome to live in the presence of God through Jesus Christ, to have access to God at every moment of our day. This, this hit me this week. I mean, there's so many different ways I could go about this, but, you know, this, here, here's one from, I've shared with some of our, some friends, and this week he was hitting me, I was reading through Exodus 3, and there's just this moment when God comes in, and I'm, I, I'm just feeling like, Lord, because honestly, what we went over the lament earlier, it has been a heavy week, guys, emotionally, and everything going on in the world around us. And I'm just coming to the Lord, it just, it feels like wilderness. It feels like desert. And, and I remember I, I came to Exodus, and there was this point where it's like, I, I come to Exodus, and, and just seeing Moses in this burning bush in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness, and, and just realizing, like, in the midst of this time that we often find ourselves in, where it just feels like hard ground, one thing makes our life, and everywhere we go, holy ground, and that is the presence of our God, and how often we live so distant from God's presence, and yet the author here is saying, do you realize that the invitation to you in the midst of when the world's gone mad, there's one thing that you have not lost, which is God is with you, Emmanuel. In the midst of a world gone mad, pain, illness, difficulty, doubt, ups and downs, don't lose the plot. Don't lose the real story that you're ultimately in. 
Yet the thing is, we wake up every day gospel amnesiacs. Remember once somebody said that to me. We wake up forgetting the gospel every day. And we wake up forgetting the good news and the life that we have in God and that he's welcomed us into. And and what happens is we go about our, our lives, and our lives are filled with stories, actually. See, if you think about the way that we tend to wake up and go about our day, we think that we like, kind of navigate the world neutrally. But the thing is, our entire world is filled with narratives and stories, what, narratives that shape us, that say this is where actually you can find the good life. My wife and I last week were in Branson, did a wedding there, and we went to the outlets there, which are amazing outlets, by the way. Got this shirt. But went to the outlets, and as we're in the outlets, like I'm walking around, and all of a sudden I start feeling like, man, I need to get like... I need to get more hair. Uh, I need to get more, like, you know, my, like my build. I need to, like all this stuff. I'm like thinking like, oh, I need to get more money. And I'm like, why am I, like I could feel I'm going down this road. And what I realize is because there's messaging all around me. I'm in a consumer temple here and everything is saying, look like this, wear this, do this, buy this, drive this, then you'll have the good life. I'm inhabiting a story. Most advertising gives you a story. And so what happens as Christians is we tend to think if I just navigate the world, I can just, it's neutral. But it's not a question of if something will shape you. It's what story will shape you and captivate you. And the author of Hebrews says the story that we need to be captivated by is the fact that God has invited us to draw near to him. And he is our shepherd who walks with us and provides brothers and sisters around us in the midst of a world no matter what happens. And what happens is the author then brings together this idea of drawing near to God and meeting together. Look at verses 21 through 25. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we see something here about the purpose of the gathering. Why do we draw near? Well, one, it's to encounter something by God reminding us of something and then realigning us to something. First, it reminds us of who God is and who we are. When we draw near to God and when we draw near to one another, when we gather together, we're meant to be reminded of who God is. Look at, notice that it says you draw near with confidence. You draw near with full assurance. Now, if you think about it, why does he have to say this? Why does he have to remind us that you can draw near to God? Because if you think about it, like the encouragement, draw near to God, and you're like, well, that sounds nice. I'll just draw near to God, right? Why don't we? Why don't we? Why does he have to say have confidence, have full assurance, Because I think the default state of our hearts in the midst of a world where we realize we become aware of our sin, we become aware of our doubts, we become aware of the pain that we cause in others' lives, we become aware of these things. And our natural inclination is just like in the garden to go run and go hide. To not believe that what God has finally done in Jesus Christ really is enough and that I really am called into God's presence, but to come week in and week out and day in and day out and hour by hour to become aware of these things in ourselves and then just to run and isolate ourselves and run and hide. You can almost think of the Sunday gathering and the call to worship as God saying, where are you? I'm calling you to myself. I've made a way.
I was thinking about this while working on this, and I realized often the reason why I don't want to come to church is because there's something I want to avoid. Could be I feel guilty about sin, could be I'm bitter towards someone at church, I could be filled with doubt, but what we need is not to avoid our sin, but be reminded of how God deals with our sin and the life he promises. Listen, it's, it's very, very healthy to be aware of our sin, but we also, what's also healthy, it can become unhealthy if we become too preoccupied with just our sin. What we'll do is we'll either run and hide or we'll just pretend that it's all okay. What we're meant to do is not only be acknowledge our sin and acknowledge our pain, acknowledge our questions, acknowledge our doubt, but then also what the author here is saying is you're meant to then draw near to God and bring them to him and be reminded of his goodness, reminded of his faithfulness. There are many, I'll come back to this, but there are many reasons. Here's, here's an old phrase that we would use at a church I was part of. There are many good reasons why we might have to miss church, but let's just remember, because right now we've, especially a lot of it, like we have compromised immune systems, there have been a lot of things in our, lately, right? There are reasons why we have to be out of town, things like that, but there's a difference between being away and avoiding. And, and it's, it, there are many good reasons why we might have to miss a Sunday, but let's agree that none of those are good for us. That oftentimes what happens is we stay away from the gathering of God's people, and it's not good for us because what happens is it begins to reinforce this narrative that actually God's grace is not sufficient for my sin, it's not sufficient for my doubts, that his power and his grace is not sufficient for the relationships and bitterness I have towards someone else in this room. And what happens is it actually is engaging in a story when we stay away. And it reinforces that. Second thing that gathering together, though, does is it also realigns us to what is true. Notice the flow in verse 45 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but engaging or encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, first, the gathering reminds us of who God is and who we are. But then second, it realigns us to what is true. And notice you know, when I read this, I expect it to say, to read like this. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but gathering together, right? I expect the, the not meeting together then to be, but instead we're gathering together. But he doesn't say that as the opposite. Notice this. What he says instead is encouraging one another. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. In other words, what he's not saying here is church is just a duty, so be there. Why do you go to church? Just because. No, he's saying you go to, you gather together because you're meant in this time when you gather together to be encouraged, to be built up as you remember something, to be realigned to that reality. In other words, what happens when we come in here, do you get what the biblical vision for God's people gathering together is when we worship together? To hear songs around you being sung out and praising God. I remember one time there was a, one of our uh, pastor elders at our, my previous church, his wife, she was actually one of our deacons amazing woman, early 40s, and she's dying of melanoma. And we knew at this point it was the end. And I remember they had a couple adopted kids, and I remember her girls being behind us, and she's by that point in a wheelchair and can't stand. I remember crying, like we're singing about God's glory and God's goodness. And I, I remember hearing their voices behind me, right? Just they're holding hands, and they're just singing out, praising God in the midst of the, in the face of death, saying, we have something that conquers this. 
Do you realize that we, here's the thing, in the day of protest out there, do you realize that we, this is what it means that we are Protestants? We have the original protest, Protestant. We have the original protest in the midst of a watching world, in the midst of a world that is dying. We have a protest every Sunday here where we say we have a king and he has landed and he has conquered and he is coming again. And until then, he will bring his gospel through his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And every week when we gather, we gather around that protest and we remember that that is true. It changes our lives. What the author is saying is when you hear people singing around you in the face of death, in the face of pain, in the face of being beat down, also filled with times of joy, filled with times of just deep happiness and, and marriages being restored and seeing these things happening around you, being reminded of truth in the midst of your life going this way. And here's the thing, because the church gathered is not about our preferences and aligning God's people around our preferences, but instead having our preferences aligned around God's word and the truth of who he is. And what happens, honestly, guys, so often is all those preferences that we have, and listen, there are a lot of preferences in a church that they're not bad things. Like, you should prefer that I'm preaching from the Word of God, and that's from the Word of God, right? What I'm saying are the add-ons that are things that are just personal preferences. That's why that word personal is there. We prefer God's Word because God's Word is true, right? There are things that we should say, this should happen, because it's commanded in God's Word. But what happens is we often end up conforming the gathering of God's people around just what we desire. And, and honestly, what I would say is the church, by and large, in many ways, has failed to help Christians see why we gather and how it conforms our desires. When we make it about a product, yeah, of course, that's where it's going to go. You play consumer games, you get consumer outcomes. And so what we need is we need to be discipled instead and are saying, why do we gather? We gather in order to encounter God, and then all of our preferences kind of find their place, Right? And so what we'll talk about as staff and, and as leadership, we'll talk about wanting to do things in an undistracting manner here. We want to do things in such a way that you're not kind of like your you know, toes are curling over because it's so poorly done, but then also like not so amazing with like a fog machine that you're just like, <gasps> you know, I'm trying to come up with a witty line there. But anyways, I'm going to get myself in trouble. But it's, you know, undistracting because it's so polished that you're like, wow, these people are like angels coming down from heaven. I could never be like them. And then also you have this undistracting excellence where it's not so bad and poor that God's people can't close their eyes and sing and engage with the words that God has given them to sing. That's a little bit of an aside, but what we are meant to do is gather together, do it well, do it with quality in order to make a V-line to point and make much of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and to praise him in the midst of whatever's going on in our world. And what happens is as we do that, it changing, changes us, it realigns us, it shapes us to be a different kind of people. Now, with that said, let me then unpack how, how does the gathering accomplish its purpose? How, how do we tell the story here at Anthem? And some of you have heard some of this, but some of you haven't heard it just kind of all the way walk through. Listen, again, a, a lot of times we're, think, we're used to thinking of church as maybe like a show or a production or a performance, right? Even the, the word service sometimes seems like it's a modern, that's just a modern phenomenon. I'm telling you, this is, church has only been done the way that's done in the last 50 years maybe in the West where it's just maybe kind of, and I could go into, I wish I had time just to spend 10 minutes going into how we got here and how, we're, how we need to change things, but we'll skip all that. 
Throughout history, the gathering has been a gathering that's for the purpose of retelling God's story of redemption. And then what happens is each member finds, you could say, their subplot in that story. And they're realigned to it. In other words, here's a phrase you could remember. Sunday isn't a ritual for the week. It's a rehearsal for eternity. Sunday isn't just a ritual for the week. It's a rehearsal for eternity. So when we gather, we rehearse, we remember, we realign around the truths of the gospel through, and I'm going to use a big word here, a liturgy. Now, a liturgy sounds like something that's one of those old terms. It is just a Latin term that just means the order of things. Okay, so I'm going to use this term liturgy, and you're going to hear it. And what I don't mean is just kind of smells and bells and all this kind of stuff that we tend to make liturgies. What I mean by liturgy is that liturgy is the proper term for the order of how things are done when God's people gather. And so many things in our culture have liturgies. We have liturgies when we go to the mall and how we engage there. When we have liturgies, every single church has a liturgy. It's not a question of if, but what is it and how do they do it? So here's our liturgy and how we do it and how we retell the gospel story here. First, we begin with the call to worship. So these are here. This is kind of the order, and we sometimes change these up. We're not like robotic. We're not wooden about this. We don't serve this. This serves worshiping God, right? But we often begin with the call to worship. And what you heard this morning when I got up and did the call to worship was we do not just merely wake up and go, oh, good thing I'm fully righteous and I will now wake up and I will go to church, right? Actually, what happens is we wake up every morning and we are gospel amnesiacs. We forget the good news of the gospel. We wake up and we find ourselves, if it's but for the grace of God, just going absolutely the opposite way from God. And so what God does in his grace every morning is he pulls us to himself. His mercies are made new every day and he invites us to himself. And when God speaks, the church responds. And so the reason why we read from the passages in Scripture, like Psalm 100, that invite us to worship God is because we're reminded that we have not put on this for God. God has invited us into something. And he's invited us here in order to encounter him and to change us. And then after we hear God invite us into his presence, then what happens is we usually do an adoration song. Now, I say an adoration song because an adoration song then is a song that makes much of an attribute of God. We, we make much of you're a good father or something like that, you're holy, and, and we sing of that, and this is just a time to acknowledge the God who has invited us here is like this. And, and something I don't, I'm not going to unpack, but all of our singing and our songs, we are very careful to make sure that they are pointing us to words that are founded in Scripture, that they're not just merely a motive. That's not merely we just come in here to, and then our, our job is just to get people to go like happy, 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 happy. And you're like, I feel happy, right? No, it's, it's, it's meant to bring us in and go, we're encountering a holy God. And as you encounter him, you go, your heart is filled with worship. God is amazing. And then we move into a time of confession and assurance. And what I mean by that, I said it a little bit earlier when we did the confession time. This is a time when as we raise our hands, I don't know if you've ever had this experience in church. Guys, even as a pastor, let me tell you a secret. I have this experience. I'm singing, and I'm singing about some attribute of God, and what becomes clear to Have you ever had that experience where, like, you want to raise your hands, and then you kind of do this because you remember something that you've done that week? Where when, you, when you're singing to a holy God, you begin singing, and maybe your voice trails off because you realize there are ways I've used my mouth this week. I've torn people down. When you 
you, you're thinking of God, and then all of a sudden that thought comes back in your head, and you're remind, reminded of the things you focus your eyes on and you fantasize about or whatnot in your mind. Like when we come into the presence of a holy God, here's what's natural and healthy, which is when we see a holy God, we become aware of the sin that we have. We become aware of where we're breeding death, where that's an ongoing reality. And we have two options. We have the option of either we can acknowledge that and we can deal with it in the way that Scripture deals with it, or what we can do is we can learn to sweep it under the rug. And I'm telling you, if we just come in and all we do, and we gather 5, 10, 15 years, your kids are raised in this church, and every Sunday they come in, and they just learn to just praise God, and you're great, and you're good, and we never address sin, and we just move on, what will happen is they'll learn that's how you deal with sin. Sweep it under the rug. Just kind of look around and, oh, no, it's okay. No, what we're meant to do when we encounter a holy God and and see our sin is then to move towards, this is why it's the word assurance, or you'll see the word consolation, that God then offers us the grace of Jesus Christ, and he beckons us with the grace of Christ. And so you'll see us go to places like 1 John, we say, listen, there is, if there's darkness, then let God shine the light of his grace into your life and bring and, and acknowledge his grace and take hold of it and confess your sin. And so sometimes we'll take moments of silence to confess our sin before God because, let's be honest, almost none of us ever even take 30 seconds throughout our week to go before God and be silent. We want, we want to model that and learn it together. In the midst of a coming and going world, we forget to just pause and go before God and go, God, search my heart and know me. And just be there before him. And be there with others in the body of Christ who are acknowledging, yes, Lord. There but for the grace of God, there, there go I, Lord, I am not here because I am any more righteous than that guy over there, right? But I'm here purely because of Christ's righteousness. That's the ground of my identity. And as we receive it, then we receive that consolation. We receive that assurance in Christ. And so then we go into usually a song and we begin singing. And what's happening there in that first part of the liturgy is we, we are remembering the reality that God is a God who is holy. He's created a world where we've fallen and we've we vandalized God's holiness. We've rebelled against him, but yet God in his grace calls us and he makes, he makes a remedy. He's given us a solution. And so we shouldn't run. We shouldn't pretend. We shouldn't hide. But together, we should learn to confess that to God and receive. Deeply formative. It shapes you when you do that over time. Usually then after a song, where we, usually those songs are like, we're like, thank you, Lord, because or else this would be really bad, right? That's essentially the gist of the songs after that. <laughs> and then we praise God, and then we usually go into a time of what's called, historically, the passing of the peace or the greeting time. Now, let me say something when I address this. I know that a lot of you, you're used to only hearing of the welcome time, right? It's like the greeting time comes up in church, and everyone's like, oh, here we go, right? Because somebody gets up, and they're like, hey, find somebody purdy next to you and give them a kiss, right? And you're like, this is super awkward, right? So one of the things historically in the church, this is why this existed. Some of you, this is going to blow your mind. The passing of the peace was something that existed because as we remember how God has vertically reconciled our t- us to himself, we are then meant as the church then to put that in a horizontal option or into horizontal. If we are, if we love God, then we will love one another. And so what this is meant to do is to remind us when we turn to one another that we are reconciled sinners. This isn't just happy, slappy greeting time where we just turn to one another and it's like, hey, how you doing, right? What it's meant to be is you turn to one another and you go, wow, there were probably things this week that I need to forgive. And I was holding over you. In Scripture, this was called a holy kiss, right? Now, we don't do that, right? But we're trying to draw out the principle of that. 
which is when we meet together, what we would do is we would turn to one another at some point and we would go, listen, if I've been reconciled to God and you've been reconciled to God, then where do we start with one another? With the peace of Christ. And so here's some explanation like that. And so sometimes we use those modern terms of like greeting time and whatnot, because we get if we're like, hey, the peace of Christ, turn to one another and say, peace of Christ. And you're like, what's going on, right? So you need, there needs to be an understanding of this. But the whole point of this is to be reconciled. I just want to hear highlight one story. I think I may have shared it once here before. I remember once, just to give you an idea of how this shapes you, because hopefully what you're hearing here is our goal is not just after one Sunday, you'd walk away and go, wow, Anthem is amazing. What would happen is that after three, five, four, or 10 years gathering here, it would change the kind of Christian that you are. It would shape you in very healthy ways. Remember, there was a couple, young couple, married couple in in church I was pastoring. Not here. Uh, and the couple, it came out that the, female, the wife had had an affair. And this was something that had been ongoing, and we thought maybe this was happening. I get a text from the husband. This, she just told me this. And so he says, what do I do? And I was like, well, are you stable? Because he's like, I'm going to go meet her at home. We're going to meet. She just confessed to me. And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I call him, and he's like, I'm just getting more and more angry. And then so I'm like, I better get in the car and beat him there, right? So I, I get there, and when I get there, he had already arrived, and when they're there, they're weeping together, and they're crying. And, and what he told me was he got there, and he had every intention of just physically exploding. You can imagine we do in our flesh when something like that happens. And he said, when I got to her, I, I, I realized when I walked up to her, I was like, he, this is how he described it. He said, it was like I was, because I asked him later what happened. He said, it was like I was teleported to the passing of the peace that we do every Sunday morning. And he said, I walked up to her, and everything in me just wanted to rage, and everything just wanted to, you know, take her by the neck, like just, just break down and just yell at her and scream at her and fight and wail. And, and what I realized in that moment was, where else can I go? Where else can we go? And so he realized in that moment, like, I'm, I'm angry, and this has caused so much collateral damage in our relationship. It doesn't get rid of any of that. That has to be dealt with. But we can't actually deal with it, and it won't help my soul if I just rage and I just burn, but that if I see that even in the midst of the greatest crime ever committed against me, grace is even still possible. I don't have to live burning with bitterness and hatred, but I can find forgiveness. And so he said I just was able to forgive her in that moment. And it was like turning to her and saying, the peace of Christ be with you. He said, I don't know how else to describe it. There was a long process of restoration in that marriage. Lots of hard things to work through. Collateral damage, consequences, restitution, all have to come after that. But they were able to start there. And one of the things that was shaping, and one of the reasons why we do this on Sunday mornings is so we don't become a people who navigate around each other self-righteously, but we navigate around each other with the disposition towards I've been forgiven, and so I I extend forgiveness to you. This is what binds us together. After that moment then of sharing the peace of Christ, we come into a time we could call it contribution, or we could call it the announcement time. And so this is a time of saying if God has caused this in the body and we're reconciled to one another, now there are realities as a family, what God has called us to in stewarding our gifts, our time, our talent, our treasure. And so we'll focus on a text sometimes, and we'll, call, we'll remind ourselves of these are the ways in which we are called to steward our time and talent treasure here in this body. Then moving on, then it goes into the proclamation of the word. You might be like, what's that? That's the sermon. The reason why we call it the proclamation of the word is because it's two parts, actually. It's the scripture reading, then the sermon. 
The reason why we do a scripture reading, we started doing that about nine months ago, is because we want one thing to be clear. God's word speaks before any man commentates on it. God's word stands alone. And so we want God's word to be read without any kind of commentary, without any kind of addition or subtraction, and we want you to hear it in full before then we come up here and we teach on it. And what that does is it says that we stand under God's word. It's the ultimate authority, not my personality, not someone else's up here, their articulation or oration, but God's word is what stands. And so then after we have the proclamation of the word, then we come together in communion, which we'll do in a little bit. And after we're reminded of who Christ is, then we come around the table and we take a meal together. In other words, here's what's, I'm going to say something and some of you are like, whoa, the original altar call was communion. The original thing in a church gathering that would happen is God's people then would hear the gospel proclaimed, and those who are walking with Christ, they would then take a meal together to remind themselves of the ongoing communion they have with Christ. Those who are non-believers in their presence would see that this is not something that right now they have, and when they see that, then they would repent, and they would come forward, and they would accept Christ by faith. Then they would be baptized in order to become one with Christ, and then after that, have ongoing communion with him in the body right? And so every week we come around the table and remember that we're reconciled sinners that are gathered around a table together because of what Christ has done. And then after we've gathered around and we celebrate, then we sing a song and we praise God together before he sends us out. And then we go into a benediction where then, as we say every week, it's a blessing for the road. It is, we are not merely gathering as the, or coming here as the church, and we are not merely just leaving, but we have been called here and now God is sending us. He has called us here to remind us of the gospel. Now we're realigned to that reality and we're sent out to live it out wherever he has placed us. So this is how we remember what God has done. This is the way we tell the story. This is the way that we try to make sure every week we're reminded of the gospel and realigned to the gospel in order to be sent out into the world around us. Now lastly, quickly, then how do we encounter God in the gatherings? In other words, we're going to do our part to set the table here and for all of us to be able to engage. What we and we all set the table. But as we do so, how do we engage? What are some helpful ways? So I'm just going to close with this. An encounter mindset. When you think of coming and gathering together with God's people, do you have an encountering, you could say encountering God mindset? Imagine if the way that we prepared for Sunday mornings was I'm going to encounter the holy God of the universe, and be reminded of who he is. And I'm going to do it with brothers and sisters. Imagine the most powerful, imagine what, Jeff Bezos? I don't know. Who's your person, right? The person, you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to meet with him tomorrow. You wouldn't just like stay up all night and just kind of like willy-nilly. You'd be sitting there thinking about how you're going to engage, what you're going to say, what you're going to do when you encounter him. How much more the God of the universe? And so three steps for the encounter mindset. Prepare. One of the things I would encourage you guys, I remember I started doing this when I was in college, but I would actually on Saturday night, I would begin to prepare my heart for Sunday morning. Like, think about how often I've, I've gone through seasons where it was like, I, I got nothing out of church because I was so tired and I couldn't engage. And my friend was like, what time did you go to bed? I was like, one. And he was like, well, maybe that's the issue, right? One of the things is, do you think the night before to prepare the time you go to bed, the discussions that you have as a family, like we try to get out the scripture text, those things ahead of time. Do you prepare for Sunday morning? It will, I'm telling you, revolutionize. I know this, some of you are like, really? Yes, it will revolutionize what happens on Sunday mornings. 
and then prepare on Sunday mornings. One of the things we started doing is we make Sunday fun day in our house. And so Sunday morning is, is a really, it's, it's, we did chocolate chip pancakes this morning. And even though I have to be out the door early, I've already got them baked. When the kids are waking up, they're there. And we're having chocolate chip pancakes. I sometimes do French toast. It's part of even when I'm getting up in the morning and getting ready because I want my children to grow up going, we are gathering with God's people. And my kids love being here. Don't make it a burden. And husbands, wives, don't be another child for your spouse to get ready. I'm not ready to comment on that. I just said that. But you get what I mean. Like, like be ready, partner together, and think, dads, think about, I want to take the lead. And dads, it might be as simple as just going, we're going to get up and we're going to have a good breakfast. And then maybe if you know what the scripture text is for that week, you can text Many, your community group leader, you could text people in the, in the church and you can find out, we have it out there, find out what the scripture text is. Usually we're preaching through books of the Bible and read it around the breakfast table. It's that, it's that simple and just do it in simple prayer, but just have a disposition of we're up, we're ready, we're going to encounter God and we're going to do it with God's people. Let's do this and celebrate it. Get ready, prepare, but then also engage. When you get here, listen, I'm just gonna drop this. What Hitchcock said we need today, be on time. One of the things that happens is we, we are, from the beginning, telling you something and recounting something that starts with God's invitation to us. Don't spend years coming here where you drop in just at the point of confessing sin. Don't just come in at the place where we just talk about contribution and the only thing your heart hears over time is, hey, go to this event, give money to this, serve in this, and that's the first thing you hear. Our hearts are meant from the very beginning when we come to be reminded of the gospel from beginning to end and be realigned to that from beginning to end. I remember I kept coming late and I'd come in just during confession and I was like, this place is dour, right? Where it's like, no, God, a holy God, that comes before it. And that sets the stage and the context for it. And so bring a, bring a Bible, bring a pen, remove distractions. Listen, guys, here's something I'm going to, some of these I'm just saying because I know I'm going over. I, for years, would go to church, and yes, this is even when I was in seminary and trained to become a pastor, I realized I would walk in, and my disposition was to come in, sit down in the chair, and essentially say, move me. What happens is if we all do that one, what will happen is we'll end up making this just a product. The church gathers, anticipating, gathering with one another, seeing one another, engaging with who God is, and engaging throughout the morning. So we come and we're ready. We come and we're ready. You could come. We, we now do prayer before, starting at 9, 10 right now. If you want to come and you can pray, there's a whole group down here praying for God to move. You could come and do that. You could just be early and be fellowshipping out there, but come and be ready. Be ready to engage. And I know I'm the same way where it's like I'm coming in, like kind of when I can get here, but just think, get here on time. I want to hear God's invitation to gather with his people and to sing with them from the very beginning. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation. Lastly, consider Reflect on, this is what the author of Hebrews says, consider, consider, consider. Why does he say consider? Because so often we don't consider, right? When you hear truth, to consider when you walk away from it, what are the implications for my life? What are the implications for my life? Consider when you walk away from here. Have time at lunch. Have time at some point Sunday to be preparing for Monday to consider, Lord, what are you calling me to? What would be the thing this week? What's one action that I could take? consider. It continues long after the gathering is done. So I would, I would uh, encourage you to consider those three. 
prepare, engage, consider, talk to your spouse, talk to your roommates, just dwell on it, meditate on it yourself. How could any of those three steps, what steps could you take and become more intentional so you'd have that encountering mindset? By valuing encountering God over our personal preferences, we engage in Sunday mornings in order to remember the story of God and have our personal preferences realigned to his will for our lives, not the other way around. God calls us here to be, in order to be encouraged, built up, so we don't live lives driven by the default liturgies around us in our culture, driven to and fro, it says in Scripture, by whatever winds of the day, but reminded regularly of what is most true and unchanging, to be reminded of the life we are meant for by encountering God in Jesus Christ. So every Sunday, draw near with an encounter mindset to be reminded and realigned to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for just the feast that you set before us every Sunday morning. There's so many different analogies we could use to describe the Sunday gathering. Lord, just this meal you lay before us, this upbuilding time, this time as a family to gather together. Lord, would you captivate our hearts? Would you help us to see as we move throughout the morning how this is just a progression of the reality of what you've done in Christ and how it shapes us, it does challenge us, it sharpens us. And Lord, would you, as you, as we engage on Sunday mornings, would you conform us to Christ's likeness? This is just one way that we do it as a church, but Lord, help us to do it well. Help us in the midst of a the world around us, Lord, help us to anchor ourselves in this truth, in this story, in this reality, and let it fundamentally change us. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. And, Lord, we thank you for the meal we're about ready to enjoy with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.